Hello. Good morning. Greetings. My name is Thomas, and I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview. I do not often get the pleasure of coming over here to East Campus and uh, sharing the word with you uh, because my main home is over at Central, uh, working with groups. But today is a different story. So I'm so thankful, Doug Fern, and uh, you guys for giving me the privilege to share God's word with you today. Today, we are going to wrap up, complete our study of the book of Philippians. Uh, verses 10 through 23. So if you want to start flipping there, this is the flipping time. Uh, this has been, I don't know about you all, but the book of Philippians has been such a joy for me uh, as we've preached through, taught through this book, and I've written the, you know, the community group discussion questions and just uh, with our teaching team as we've worked through it. It's just been, I feel like the gospel for me has been unveiled in such a special and glorious way. Uh, I hope you guys have felt the same. Today is really no different. Uh, there's more wonderful things that the Lord wants to teach us. And so, uh, yeah, I'm kind of sad to see it go. I hope you guys are too, but there's uh, more good stuff to come. Well, when I was 16 years old, I got my first real job. Uh, before that, I had done some lawn mowing, and I had some, done some dog sitting, I had, done, you know, the normal sort of, you know, babysitting, that kind of thing. I didn't actually do babysitting. Uh, but I got my first real job. And my first real job was I was one of the people at Kinnick Stadium who would walk up and down the, the stadium steps with a big thing full of cold drinks, okay, Coca-Cola, you know, the whole thing. And this, in hindsight, was not a very good job for me for several reasons. The first one being uh, football games are on what day? Saturday morning. Well, I was playing high school football on Friday night which means about 10 hours before I went to climb up and down the steps, I was getting beat to a pulp. So every day, you know, some, something was wrong with me. And, uh, you know, it would be 7 in the morning, I have to go up there. That was part one. Part two, you really, you'd, you'd think you want to be a big guy to carry that thing up and down. You actually don't. Uh, there's very limited space. Uh, the, if you've walked around Kinnick Stadium on a game day, even without an enormous 30-pound thing on your front, you, you know this is true, uh, but imagine you're standing, and people are mad at me, you know, and I'm just, the third reason is because really a lot of your income is based on the generosity of the people. I was not super charismatic, and I didn't really like the whole salesman thing, it's not really a good fit for me, and so I remember, this is always stuck in my head, it started to get cold out, and so we didn't sell cold drinks anymore, we had hot chocolate, I was carrying around hot chocolate, you imagine how that went. Uh, and I remember this guy came up and he said, hey, do you guys take tips? Exactly what I wanted to hear, yes, because I was relying on the generosity of these strangers, you know. And he said four words that I'll never forget. He said, here's a tip, don't eat yellow snow. <sighs> Good day, <laughs> you know. It was awful, but uh, generosity, right? I was, I was relying on generosity. I needed generosity really in order to make make uh, anything significant for my 16-year-old self. Generosity is something that I think we all realize that we want to develop and want to practice as a church, of course, especially, uh, because of the generosity shown to us by God. Uh, but it's not something we often think about how, the, how do we develop generosity? How do we become generous? 
often we'll say someone is generous, but we don't think about, it's almost as if it's something they were born into. But we know that's not true. How do, so how do we get uh, to generosity? How do we practice generosity? How do we cultivate a generous heart? Well, today, uh, as Paul wraps up his letter to the Philippian church, he wants to help us answer that question. And so let me read the text to you, verses 10 through 23 in Philippians 4. And it says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received the, the, from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And thus the letter ends. Let's pray and ask God to give us insight into his word so that we can obey Jesus and, and glorify God forever. Heavenly Father, holy God, we are here, we are your temple, you have said. And so we are here that, that our offerings, our lives, every bit of it, uh, from, from the, the sacrifices that we give for you, the way we suffer uh, for the trouble of others, especially that they might know uh, that Jesus is the one true king, that those would rise up to you truly and, and faithfully. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would clear away the cobwebs of our mind and all the, all the vicissitudes of the week and everything that's been on our minds and focus on one thing only that your spirit would come, convict of sin, and point us to Jesus. Spirit, exalt your son today, we pray. Amen. I want you to see Parkview Church today, uh, and I want you to absorb this message. Practice generosity by cultivating contentment and compassion. Practice generosity by cultivating a content and compassionate heart. This is what this passage is telling us today. Paul, through this sort of thank you note, to the Philippian congregation, he reveals two key attributes of a heart that it, it bears the fruit of generosity, and those are contentment and compassion. Here we find ourselves in, um, it's a bit of an awkward part of the letter. Uh, clearly, Paul has reserved the most sensitive matter of his letter for the very end, just like you might do in a conversation with a friend. There's one more thing. And he, he wants them, well, he, he's got to navigate this treacherous interaction because uh, gift giving can be a little awkward for us today. Even maybe you're expecting this sermon to be, oh, he's going to talk about money. Yeah, of course. Uh, but even more so in the ancient East, gift giving, and even today in the East, gift giving is really, it's more complex than, than we realize. 
On the one hand, if Paul, in his response, uh, you see he says, I've received your gift from Epaphroditus, and he's thanking them, right? If he is so effusive in his praise, thank you, thank you, thank you, it's a signal to them in the conventions of their time, I need more. Paul doesn't want, he's very clear, I don't need more. But on the other hand, if he, if he is not very thankful at all, if he, he almost insults their gift, then, well, he's insulting them. And so he's sort of walking this tightrope uh, where he wants to not give offense, but he also wants to encourage. And so uh, as we read through this, we have to remember this is a letter. And while it was written for us, it wasn't written to us. And so it takes a little bit of uh, kind of reading between the lines because Paul flips back and forth because he's dealing with a, a sensitive matter. But the first thing we see, as I promised, is that generosity is a fruit of contentment. Contentment bears the fruit of generosity. We see this in, in verses 11 through 13 and then in the end of the second section, 18 through 20. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I'm not. For, because I've learned the secret. that I, I've learned in every situation, any and every situation, how to be content. Uh, it's because Christ gives me strength. I, I am content. In this letter to the Philippians, Paul often lapses into this sort of autobiographical style where he'll sort of drop off his argument or appear to, and then he'll start to say, well, here's how it went for me. Here's how that went for me. This is something, you might do this with your friends. You're sort of talking with them, and you'll say, ah, here's my experience. And what you're really proving a point, but you're doing it by sharing your experience. Here's what Paul does here as well. And he acknowledges a couple of realities that we have to also recognize, realities about uh, money and about contentment. The first is when he says, I am able to endure, he says, I can endure, or he says, I can do all things. I'm going to keep saying endure for reasons I'll get to, uh, through, through Christ who empowers me, who gives me strength. I'm able to endure, right? What he's saying is money has a certain kind of power. You might expect Paul, uh, the great spiritual leader, to say, oh, money, pish posh, who cares? I don't, you know, have it, I don't, bleh, whatever, don't care. No. He says, I, I, I need power from Jesus to, to faithfully endure both wealth and poverty. It has a power. It gives us a certain sense of control, right? Uh, Self-determination. Uh, when, we, when we have it, we feel safe. When we don't have it, we feel not, not so safe. We feel like we're in danger. When we have it, we feel happy. When we don't, we might feel unhappy. When we have it, we feel successful. When we don't, you see, we feel important. We don't, and it, it, hinging upon that reality. And in Paul's time, uh, don't, don't look back and say, oh, well, Paul didn't really understand the realities of money. No, no, no. There was, Paul had no social safety net, okay? And he's in prison. He can't make money. And when you're in prison, you don't get fed three meals a day like you do today. You're completely at, if, if people don't take care of your needs, you're starving. And so Paul was not, oh, yeah, that's fine. I don't know. This was real for him. And yet he acknowledged, he, of course, acknowledges money has a power. And the Bible never denies that. But with that particular power, of course, comes a particular peculiar danger. And that is what Paul is concerned with. Paul acknowledges that the power of money, second, second reality that Paul acknowledges, is that the power of money is not one-sided. He says, I've learned, you know, we expect Paul to say, I've learned how to endure poverty. I've learned how to go hungry. I've learned how to not have all my needs met. 
But he doesn't just say that, does he? I've learned how to go hungry, but I've also learned, I've also learned how to endure wealth. I've been strengthened to persist in obedience when I'm when I've had more than I needed. But we don't expect that. But but Paul's is very clear. The the fact is, the very simple fact is that Jesus spoke more about money than about any other singular ethical issue in his time. In the Sermon on the Mount, he summarized his reasoning when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We carry our wallets close to our hearts. So for Paul to say that he has found the secret to endure, whether that wallet is heavy or light, when Jesus says this is one of the greatest dangers, he says how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, to say that he has unlocked one of the realms of discipleship that's most fraught with both opportunity and danger should perk up our ears, right? Listen up. Here's what Paul says, uh, if I can summarize. Money has a certain kind of power, but I'm able to endure all the fluctuations of worldly wealth and poverty because I've found a deeper power. Not by denying the power, but by finding a deeper power. Power, and it is, of course, as everyone probably knows from Philippians 4.13, in Christ who strengthens me. I can endure all these things. In fact, the gospel gives us an overarching narrative from which poverty and riches can steal nothing. The story of the gospel is that we are so spiritually poor that the most spiritually wealthy person who has ever existed had to empty his bank account, so to speak, to buy us out of debtor's prison. And he did it joyfully. That's what Jesus did on the cross. On the other hand, since Jesus rose from the grave, the gospel also tells us uh, that since we're connected to Jesus, this incredibly wealthy person, spiritually speaking, we, we spiritually, we make Bill Gates look like Oscar the Grouch, okay? Living in a trash can, Bill Gates over there, while we are abounding with all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing has come to us in Jesus Christ. This is the power, the deeper power, the deeper strength that Paul has. A storehouse of truer treasure that makes his earthly circumstances seem tawdry in comparison. In fact, all his earthly circumstances can do is remind him of this deeper spiritual truth. In James 1, uh, we see this. I was just reading in Psalm 62 where it says some of the same thing, but it says, Let the lowly man uh, boast in his exaltation. Let the poor person boast in their exaltation and the rich one in their humiliation. What is James? Okay, well, he's saying what I think Paul is getting at here too. Uh, when your ATM receipt tells you that you're nothing, remember that Christ was willing to pay everything for you. And that's how, how rich you actually are. When your bank statement tells, that, tells you that you are something, Remember that Christ had to pay everything for you. There was no other way. And so the gospel not only gives us power to endure both wealth and poverty, it also transforms both of those realities into an opportunity to remind ourselves and experience the gospel afresh. We are poorer than poor, and yet in Christ we are richer than rich. 
And therefore, this, this deeper power means when I look at my bank account, when I look at my circumstances, when I look at the cupboard, when I look at the bills and I open the mailbox and it says, mm, oh, okay, okay. This deeper power. It's been very windy in, in the past couple of days. I noticed this because I ride my bike often and it's tough. Uh, but you may have noticed when you're driving around, uh, you see a flag, right? And this tiny, harmless, you know, like six square feet of fabric, poor thing, is just flapping back and forth. Okay, the, the powerful wind is exerting all of its, all of its, uh, all of its influence, all, everything on it, and so it's just whipping back and forth. And you, you realize that if this piece of fabric were sitting on the ground or somewhere else, uh, it would not be staying in the same location, you know, on top of the old capital, say. It would be over, I don't know, in like Delaware County, uh, because it would just be whipped off, it would be, it would be dislocated from where it was. And yet, because it has a deeper foundation, be it concrete or the building that it's attached to or whatever it is, it's not as if it removes uh, the fact that the wind is whipping it back and forth, but the fact is, it, it's never actually moved. It's, it's never truly dislocated. It's never truly removed from its deeper foundation. And so are we when we embrace contentment that comes through the gospel. The, the winds of life might might whip us back and forth, and yet our deeper foundation is secure. Now, some of you are probably hearing this and, and thinking, okay, here we go. I, yeah, I know this one, right? You know, don't worry about being poor because you've got Jesus, you know? So it's fine, just stay poor, I don't know. You know, God, maybe he'll take care of you, whatever. You know, pie in the sky, by and by, right? And yet this is not, that's not at all what this passage is saying, because there's more. Paul does trumpet the power that the gospel gives us, the deeper foundation, the spiritual strength, but there is more. And it is that the spiritual inheritance that we have in Jesus is, is not just spiritual power, it's a connection with the almighty God. This is where we get into sort of the interesting cultural aspects of, of Paul's thank you note, where if you notice, he never says thank you. Uh, but there were, there were several types of giving and receiving relationships. You notice how he says, no other church entered into giving and receiving. That was actually a technical phrase. Uh, this is sort of for a, a particular kind of relationship you could have with another person. Like I mentioned, these sort of fraught gift-giving relationships. Uh, you know, you had sort of the patron-client relationship uh, where the wealthy person would sort of fund, uh, you know, a philosopher or a teacher, whoever it was, rhetorician in that time, and then, but they sort of had control, right? And they could say, come teach my kid in my house what to do, come go give this lecture in my honor over here, and blah, blah, blah. And so, no, not, didn't want that one, didn't want to have that one. There was also sort of the relationship of peers, where you'd have sort of more of a, more equality, but there's still some element of control, and, and some things that were in between. And all these, all these different relationships that Paul could have said and implied by, by the way that he interacted with uh, the Philippians because of their gift, uh, th what was important was the rights and responsibilities that came for each party. But Paul wants the Philippians to see something incredibly profound about this relationship. Paul turns the entire idea of this complex giving and receiving relationship on its head by saying in verse 18, I have received full payment. Because I've received this gift, it's a fragrant offering. 
a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to Paul. Sorry. Acceptable and pleasing to God. Thank you for your gift to God, to me. What is he? He's saying, what I have received, though it was from you to me, it wasn't like any kind of earthly relationship that you might be familiar with, whether it's in your Roman context, whether it's in your Greek context, whether it's in your American context today. In fact, what's happened is, your gift to me, your obedience to God to give to me out of compassion, which we're getting to, was first of all, a fruit of your relationship with the Almighty God. It, it was a fragrant off. He's deliberately invoking the language of the Old Testament temple, where God's dwelling uh, place was, and, and the faithful Israelites would come, and they would offer up, you know, a bull, a sheep, a lamb, whatever, and, and it would be an offering, and you see punctuated throughout uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, and it was pleasing to God. It was a, a sacrifice pleasing to God, and, and what he's saying is, your gift is, is analogous to that. It's the same exact language, the same exact phrase that Paul uses in, Philippi, or, sorry, in Ephesians 5.2. He uses the exact same phrase to describe Jesus. Jesus is offering. In, in Christ, God has so deeply located us into the life of God that we can say that our obedience to God, in the, at least we can say it in the realm of finances, and I think we can apply it beyond, our, that obedience is of the same type, though not the same measure, uh, as, as that of Jesus. This is mind-blowing. Remember those little lambs, Paul says. Remember those little sheep? Remember those bulls, those big bulls? And you would get them and you'd say, go, go into the temple and you'd sacrifice it. He, he says, this is your offering. You're offering to me. That, that's, that's it. It's, it's, a whole, it's a holy aroma arising to the God of all power and wisdom and knowledge. There is no more need for the temple. Why? Because you are the temple. And your obedience to God is the sacrifice that pleases him. And he brings this point to immediate application when he goes on to say, and my God, the same God who received those sacrifices, that offering, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the same measure as his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Of course, first we have to note that it says needs, right? He will meet every need, not every desire. Uh, sometimes what God calls a need, we might call a want and, and vice versa. Uh, but, but beyond that, without giving too many qualifications, we have to say being connected to God through the gospel not only brings contentment because we are so spiritually rich, but it also brings a deep and meaningful connection to the whole treasury of God's power and favor. Our Father, if, if we belong to Jesus, our Father who cares more about us than even we do, than, than anyone else in the whole universe, he happens to be the most wealthy person in the cosmos. Uh, he can print money, is what that means, okay? So when he sees his little children in need, of course, he's going to define what that need is, but he will never fail to take care of them. If, if you belong to Jesus, your ultimate well-being in every realm has become God's responsibility through Jesus. 
If you are attached to Jesus by faith, he is as concerned for your flourishing as he is for his perfect son. How concerned do you think God is about his, Jesus' flourishing? Do, do not decrease it by one ounce, and that is how concerned he is for you. Do you want to develop a heart that, that when cut bleeds generosity and blessing to others? Meditate on this truth. You can give exactly what God has asked, even if it costs you a lot, exactly as he desires, because it's up to him to take care of you. It's, it's his name on the line. This, this doesn't mean we don't work hard. This doesn't mean we don't obey God. It's not let go and let God or anything like that, but it means that the ultimate results are in his hands. In uh, one of my favorite films, uh, I hope some of you have seen it, 2001 film, it's called The Princess Diaries. Uh, great film. Uh, <laughs> I really recommend it, actually. My sister made me watch it about 15 times. Uh, but uh, Anne Hathaway's character, Mia Thermopolis, uh, she's sort of this down and out, uh, doesn't really know who her dad is. Um, he's, he's gone and left and apparently has died and Anyway, this whole thing, uh, she finds out one day, in the, the typical princess story fashion, that she is the sole heir to the fictional kingdom of Genovia. And her life is just instantly changed. And she has to discover how to become a princess, and Julie Andrews, and the whole thing. It's amazing. But, but in a moment, every one of her worries about money are over because she finds out that her father has control of incredible wealth. In Jesus, this is exactly what has happened to us. We have found ourselves into the situation where our, our God owns all the gold, okay? And he can move heaven and earth to take care of us. And so the, the first attribute of a generous heart is contentment. Contentment, to believe that my life is in God's hands, he is in control, and to be in touch with the power uh, that Christ gives us and, and in touch with the, the power uh, that our Heavenly Father, or with the reality that our Heavenly Father is, is even more concerned about our well-being than, than any of our little efforts to, to make do could ever be. And so, as I said, when, the, when your bank account tells you you're really something, let the gospel humble you. When your bank account tells you you're nothing, let the gospel exalt you. And when things get upside down in, in your ledger, Pray to a father who is not only incredibly loving, but also uh, incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, and, and he promises to take care of your needs. Of course, this will mean trusting him to define what a need is. Uh, it might take the humility to ask for help, uh, but it also means trusting him to take care of those needs. And so the first uh, aspect of a heart that bears the fruit of generosity is contentment. The second one is compassion. Generosity is a fruit, that is, of gospel-fueled compassion. We see this in verse 10, uh, the beginning verse that, that Paul uh, writes, and then really the end of the passage, 14 through 18. Uh, he said, so compassion. He says, I rejoiced, verse 10, in the Lord greatly that now at length you gave me a bunch of money. No, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That's what we'd expect, right? That's how you write a thank you note, right? Well, no, he has some deeper realities to point out. I rejoice that at length you have revived your concern for me. Revived, this word um, 
it has to do, it, it wasn't a money word primarily, it was a word that was used for when seeds popped up out of the ground after the cold of winter. Okay, that's something, wow, that sounds nice right about now, right? Uh, and so it was just waiting for the moment when the, when the circumstances were right, generosity was gonna pop out. He says, I'm so thankful, I rejoice, that is, that you have revived, you have renewed, you have, re, uh, one commentator said, rebloomed your concern for me. He says in verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. That's what compassion is, co-suffering, sharing trouble. And then we also see it sort of in Paul's narration of the Philippians' prodigious giving over the years in Thessalonica and uh, when he left Macedonia and so forth. Of course, the greatest mystery, like I said, of Paul's thank you knows that he never really says thank you. But in a couple places, he gets close, and, and that's what we see here. Uh, what Paul rejoices in more than the gift itself, we see in verse 10, is the spirit in which it was given. We might expect, like I said, I, I rejoice that you sent the money. Thanks for the money, Grandma, or whatever you need to say. Thanks, Philippians. But instead, he rejoices in the Lord that they have revived their concern. This, this word, concern, this translated concern, is in most places throughout the letter, it doesn't make sense to translate it this way, that's why I'm explaining it, uh, is translated, think. Set your mind this, on me. And, and so what he's saying is, uh, it's, it's been repeated time and time again throughout this letter. It's sort of one of the key words. Think like this. Have the mind of Christ. Uh, set, your, set your minds on the pattern that you have seen in these people. And so he brings it to, uh, in verse 14, where he rejoices in their kindness and willingness and, and, and recounting their generosity. Because soon after Paul left the Philippians, they burned with passion to support Paul's ministry uh, so that others could hear the same gospel, free of the burden of supporting Paul. They were even willing to support Paul as he traveled to a really nearby city. He says, you even supported me in Thessalonica. We're like, okay. It's because it was so close. It was right there. Paul, he's so lavish in, in his description of their compassionate concern. And it's all based on them reviving, re-blooming, re rethinking, thinking of Paul, being concerned for him. And by describing their compassionate generosity in this way, Paul seems to be going out of his way to tie his, his argument into a broader theme in the book of Philippians that I just sort of pointed out. It's this way of thinking, concern here, but really thinking, thinking of Paul. It's that way of thinking that we have learned in the book of Philippians to call the way of Jesus. This theme was, it's most clearly explained and exhorted to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This was my wedding passage, very near and dear to me. He, he ex encourages them to have the same way of thinking, to have the same mind as Christ. He reminded them to then to follow those whose way of thinking uh, matched this way of Jesus, uh, that you don't uh, take hold of your power, uh, but since we, we look at Jesus, he gave up all his power so that others could, could know him, could connect to God. He went down, down into the darkness of death so that we can go up, up, up into the light of life in God forever. And so he says, again, in, in 3.15, he says, look at Epaphroditus, look at Timothy, uh, look in 3.17. He continues, he goes on and on saying, look at the examples, look at this way of Jesus, set your mind this way. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Finally, at the end of his letter, as he approaches the most sensitive issue, he brings it all the way back around. And he says, look, Philippians, 
you, you, know, you have embraced this way in the, in the manner of money, in the matter of money. You put my needs, Paul says, you put my needs, you put the needs of the Thessalonians, right, and all those beyond Macedonia ahead of your own. Time and time again, you have done this for me. So why not apply the same principle in your own dealings with one another? See, the, the big issue in Philippi was unity. And so he says, look how wonderful you are at putting my needs above your others, and he's celebrating it. Uh, His thinking was really effusive in his praise uh, that they have understood the way of Jesus. Uh, You you have to imagine this letter was written uh, so they could be read just like this. Probably in Philippi, probably there's no way the church in Philippi was bigger than the the number of people in this room. Someone would stand up and read this whole letter. And as they reached this section and were warmed by the praise that Paul gave them, they would have to reflect on the rest of the letter, which they would have just heard and think, wow, if, if we have understood this, this way of Jesus in the way of our money, which Paul clearly thinks is great, we can be unified. He comes back to that in 21, which we'll get to. But he, he, he points out three aspects. This is where the Philippians are really doing well. And, and I think our job as we read this passage is really to see how can we imitate them. And so there's three quick things that I want to point out. The first aspect of the Philippians' compassion that we see, of course, is the thing I just pointed out. Their concern, their thinking of others. It says in verse 10, I rejoice that you have revived your concern, your thinking for me. It might seem obvious, but the first step to compassion for others is thinking of them. Before you can really bless someone, share their suffering, you got to think of them. It might seem obvious, but don't underestimate how difficult this is. Um, I, I cannot tell you, maybe I'm alone in this, but I can't tell you how many times I feel like I get to the end of the day and I feel like I've barely given a thought to, to other, the other people around me. You think, oh, you're pastor. I'm working. I got to finish the sermon. I got to do this. I got these three tasks. And I just get so focused. I, I don't really think about the concerns of others. The world, our broken hearts, and all these forces allied sort of against us, they teach us to look out for number one. Right? Why? Well, we've always got to strive and hustle for our own personal flourishing. But the gospel teaches us that God is so utterly dedicated to our ultimate flourishing that that we don't have to look out for number one. We don't have to look out for ourselves. We can afford to look out for others. And and we must. Practically, I think one simple way that we can imitate this this, uh, really good uh, attribute of the Philippians is to be praying for others. Uh, Not just thinking on our own, but thinking to God, praying to God. Uh, to be, before maybe you could be a compassionate person, you might be a compassionate prayer. Prayer. Be a generous prayer. Prayer is often how God actually ends up motivating us to compassion. God, help this person with this. And God is kind of like, maybe you could do it. <laughs> right? Taking the concerns of others seriously enough to give up our time to pray uh, and give up our time to consider how we might bless them and letting God show how practically we could bless them. So uh, if we want to become generous and, and compassionate, for, may first start by praying, praying for others. Second aspect of compassion that we see in the Philippians is that they're concerned not only for the physical needs of those around them, for Paul, right? But for the deeper need of connection to God through Christ. When they give beyond, when, when Paul leaves, and they, and they give time and time again. And so hopefully this passage can put to bed the idea, the question, of whether we should share the gospel just with our words 
or just with our deeds. It must be both. He, he, he says both. To proclaim what Jesus did, uh, which Mark 1 tells us is to proclaim the gospel of God's kingdom come, is not only to tell the world about God's kingdom, but to foreshadow God's kingdom, to, to begin, though in tiny ways, which will one day be much greater, to, to make the world look like it should look and, and will one day look under the full rule and reign of King Jesus. One small step to take in, in this sort of holistic compassion for others uh, would be to just look out for, for someone that you can bless in your orbit. Hopefully you know someone who has, has a need. Um, I, I, I frequent a particular coffee shop downtown. I always try to go to the same one so I can sort of form relationships and sort of, you know, head into every deal I can find. And uh, there's a couple of guys that work there that I've, I've sort of been fostering a relationship with. Uh, one of them, in particular, I won't tell you his name, uh, but lately, it was about a month ago, uh, he broke both of his hands. Let me remind you, his job is to make coffee. And so <laughs> I just walked in. Guy, I'm trying not to say his name. What happened? <laughs> uh, turns out he was really intoxicated. And he fell down. He broke both of his hands. And so, wow, what should I do here? Uh, and so what I, what I did is I, I just asked him. And this is one of those things where it's just sort of, it just comes to you by the spirit, I guess. You just like, what should I do? I don't know. It's like, that's how it happened. That's crazy. What? And I just, I just said, man, what's the hardest part about that? What's, what's the toughest thing about having your hands broken? The first thing he said, well, the second thing he said was, <laughs> first thing was in the bathroom. Second thing he said was he just can't make food. And so a, a simple way was to, to show compassion to him that was sort of holistic was I, I got him a gift card to like a little deli shop around the place and actually led to a lot more conversation. Now, if I had been more holistic, uh, which I hope to be, pray for me, uh, I, I think I would have said, I'm going to pray for you that your, your hands will be healed quicker, right? I think that's what it would look like. So I think that's, that's one way that we can move toward that kind of both praying uh, and giving, both, both compassion in our words and compassion with our deeds, sharing the gospel, foreshadowing the gospel, showing what it means. And finally, this third aspect of compassion is that the Philippians, they shared in, in Paul's trouble. He, they bared his, his trouble, they bore his trouble with him. He says in verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Since Jesus has co-suffered with us, we have the power to face abundance and also poverty because of our deep foundation. Can you imagine a church where we refuse to let anyone suffer alone? Where suffering is always diffused by the depth of our compassionate, chosen relationships with one another. Where we truly share our lives with one another. Not just the Instagram version, social media version, only the positive, but where joy and pain alike are, are co-celebrated. Where we co-celebrate compassion, right? Co we also co-celebrate, we co-lament. If we're really joined together by God's spirit in a way that the Bible is really astounding the way that it describes, then we have to say, Paul's celebration, it, it's, it's that they were so in touch with the way of Jesus that it outpoured, right? In, in that they were willing to experience loss, real loss, the Philippians, they couldn't get every latte that they wanted to because they were making sure Paul had enough and the, and the Thessalonians had enough. The gospel and the gospel alone can give us this kind of self-giving, self-donating, willing to lo have loss, real loss uh, because of the gospel. 
And so don't stop giving when it hurts. That's probably a sign that we're doing, starting to do it right, actually. Compassion, co-suffering, sharing trouble. It, it means easing the suffering of others by entering into their suffering. But by first thinking of them, right, with them holistically, right, and, and then sharing their suffering. If you really want to cultivate a heart of generosity, press into the gospel of grace at the level where uh, you start to give painfully. This passage is clearly talking about finances, and so I think we first sort of have to apply it there. Uh, finances that would encourage and, and support the, the ministry of the gospel. Uh, finances as in what you might give on a Sunday morning, uh, maybe today in the back of the church or where you guys drop that off. And so I think we, the question we have to ask ourselves, and the question I've been asking myself as I've, as, as I've worked through this is, does, does our giving, does it change our lives? Can, can we say, uh, as, as Parkview Church works to bless, uh, you know, the students of Faith Academy and global outreach and the students of the University of Iowa and all these other realms where we're trying to bless others, you know, holistically with the word, work and word of the gospel, can you say, I to that student, to that, you know, Faith Academy student, to that University of Iowa student, I'm sharing your trouble. You know, I couldn't do X, Y, or Z that I really, I, I would have liked to do, but I, I decided I would take part in your suffering. The giving principle for some time has been that we would give sort of 10%, the tithe, meaning 10th, and it would be sort of based, it's based on really one standard that we see in the Old Testament, but really, even then, it's meant to be a minimum. For some of us, myself, I think included, 10% really is, I don't know if I'd call it sacrificial. I can basically do most of the stuff I really want to do, still. We need to look in the mirror, and we need to ask the Spirit to show us today. I can't tell you this, what this would look like for you. Uh, but since this is gospel-fueled compassion, and we're grounded in gospel-fueled contentment, it, it sounds like this. Father, what would please you? I know you'll take care of me, so just, just tell me, what would it look like? How, how could I give of my, my money, my time, whatever it is? Uh, Katie and I have found a few ways to sort of help embrace this call to what we, how we express generosity. And the first one uh, is that we don't give online anymore. Um, we really want to embrace, when Paul says it's a fragrant offering, it's, it's something you, I almost, we, we do with check, you know, and I, I almost think it would be nice to do with cash, because I think offering, giving this, maybe we should call it sacrifices. We're going to gather our sacrifices. Can you imagine back in the day, they knew what it was like to, you know, to give Paul what he needed. They had to take their little goat. They're going to give up the goat, right? One of your kids might have named it already, all right? <laughs> and I, you know, and I feel, at least for me, when, I, when giving just looks like clicking, it doesn't really have that same effect. But, but when I come and I, I've got, you know, my check or maybe my cash and I put it in there, I think it should hurt a little bit, you know? A few experiences I'm not going to get to have because I'm sharing the trouble of someone else, someone I may never meet. A, a, a few drinks of coffee or whatever, whatever it might be that sort of comes to mind is the little luxuries that our, that our wealth can give us. And to say, I'm sharing in your trouble. I'm sharing in your suffering. Second of all, I think it would look like uh, just being honest with your Christian friends about finances. I think this is one of the most sort of awkward issues, uh, but I think if we really want to obey Jesus, it'd be just talk about it. How can we use our money? How, we expect accountability in the realm of, you know, like, 
purity and spiritual disciplines, you've been reading your Bible and stuff like that, we don't often expect accountability in this realm. And yet, if we take Jesus' words seriously about how dangerous and, and powerful and opportunistic this, this realm is, then I think we would, right? So talk about it. Talk about, you know, how, how's, how are you avoiding greed? How are you avoiding the temptation of greed? How are, is your gifting becoming sacrificial and, and generous? And I'm honestly, I'm really still figuring this out. And I think there's one area where we really need the generations to come together and counsel one another about what this looks like. Um, and we especially got, you know, just a lot of young people who maybe they've got student loans and all that sort of stuff, and they're just figuring out now, making some money and trying to figure out how do I handle this faithfully? We really need each other. So I hope community groups really become a place where that happens. Um, and now I'll just, I'll just wrap up by giving you two exhortations. I want to wrap up the letter of Philippians. I'm a little bit over time now. Uh, but in 21 through 23, Paul brings around, and I just want to give two exhortations. Uh, he comes all the way back to the beginning of the letter. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is, goes all the way back to verse 1. Um, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Let the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. He ends by coming back to the unity that he desires to see in the church of Philippi. And so I want to encourage you with just one exhortation, and that is just to know one another better. I hope the book of Philippians forms us as a church to know one another better. Um, in our community group, we realized this, and we decided we would just try uh, every two weeks, we have another, we sort of have a round robin set up where we just get a meal with someone. It might look something like that, but just make a plan uh, whether it's make, meeting a new person around here or deepening a friendship that you already have to know one another. Before we can really be unified, I think we just need to know each other. So know one another. And secondly, realize the strange gospel will, will bear beautiful fruit. Uh, that is what I've seen in the, in the gospel, uh, about the gospel in Philippians. Uh, in verse 22, look, those of Caesar's household greet you. Th this letter started by Paul saying, hey, I know I'm in chains, but the gospel is going forth. And he brings his letter to a close by saying, hey, uh, the people in Caesar, you know who Caesar is? Well, he's the guy who runs Rome, the biggest empire on earth. And those are the people who are greeting me. The gospel, even though it's brought me low in obedience, is actually abounding in fruit. To all worldly circumstances, this strange, paradoxical, ironic gospel where I go down in order to go up, how does this work? Obedience, even though it takes me down to death, can lead to life because that's what happened with Jesus. This is what, look at this strange king who became weak so that he might become strong. Look at this lamb of God who though slain is the true ruler of all. So let's center our life, let's center our church on this amazing, astonishing, paradoxical gospel and let us go down into the depths of obedience because Jesus has come back to life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your generosity to us in Christ. We thank you that we have become connected to you by faith, that you have loved us so deeply. And we pray that, that that generosity toward us would bear generosity in our hearts as we become contented through the blessings we have in Christ and the realization that we, we have a, a Father who loves us and will take care of every need of ours. So help us to love one another, be unified to one another, and uh, to, to love and nourish ourselves and one another with this beautiful and wonderful gospel. Amen.